from the very early days and just kind of working in tech, I realized like there's all of this opportunity to not create a company that has too many employees because there's a way to do this where you can kind of automate, delegate, standardize processes, so on and so forth, right? And so uh, what we did from the very beginning is we started looking at, you know, kind of every task that we do how does it look like if it's on an org chart? Who would this task sit below, right? And we kind of just built it from the bottoms up where any task that we would occur, we would ask ourselves, can this be automated? Yes or no? And if yes, great, let's automate it. If no, then what portion of it can be automated or delegated? And through that playbook, we've just done it in this bottoms up process where every task is either automated or delegated. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it'd mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have a great conversation today with my friend Rohan Jahar, who is the founder and partner at JT Capital, which is a uh, value-add multifamily company out of Austin, Texas. They have over, they've done over half a billion dollars of transactions, over 3000 units, focusing all their energy in Texas and Florida. We talk about why they're in Texas and Florida. We talk about the early days of his career where he held some really interesting positions as a chief of staff role at some uh, major companies. We talk about an incredible experience he had at Facebook and what it was like to get emails from Mark Zuckerberg at four in the morning. But in general, we finish it with a great conversation just on where he sees the world and the things that are interesting to him. Rohan is a a very thoughtful person, and you'll find that out in this episode. So thank you very much for continuing to join me and enjoy. Rohan, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I'm really excited about this one. Chris, thanks for having me. Uh, big fan of the podcast and what you've done with it. So super excited to be here. Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a fan of you. Well, um, let's just get started with a little bit about kind of your background growing up and kind of what brought you to what you're doing today in real estate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I grew up in a small town in Michigan uh, called Rochester, Michigan. Uh, you know, as a younger kid, your assumption is uh, living in a small town, you know, you kind of go to school get a job at one of the three auto manufacturers and kind of just live your life in Michigan. Um, But I had this opportunity when I was at college to go get this internship at GE. Uh, So I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia. It was really my first time kind of being on my own, right? Without a lot of my childhood friends, family, that kind of stuff. And just this world of opportunity opened up to me. Um, And it it was exciting, great opportunity. After college, I went to then go uh, continue to work at GE, went through some of their finance training programs, um, you know, was able to travel the world, go on to some more accelerated training programs, executive training programs, these kinds of things that helped up build, help build up foundational, um, foundational skills and got to work on some pretty interesting projects and finance operations, strategy, so on and so forth. 
after some time, um, I moved out to Silicon Valley. Uh, I went to go work at Facebook. Again, same types of roles that I was working on, a variety of these finance operations, strategic type roles. Um, and then one thing happened, uh, which kind of like built up to this. So, you know, I was meeting a lot of people out there, making a lot of friends. Um, you know, everyone seemed to be like a founder that I was meeting or, or working on these cool ideas. And yeah, I started getting this nagging feeling that, you know, there's no difference between us. We're kind of just the same. They just took action on their ideas. And I have all these ideas, like, why am I not taking action? And so, you know, it's kind of building up, building up. And I remember one day uh, at Facebook, you know, that's open seating. I sit, uh, I sat near the HR team and uh, the rankings on Glassdoor or some other publication came out that, you know, Facebook is the number one place to work. Uh, and the HR team was celebrating and they were super excited. And I had this like very surreal moment where I was like, oh man, if this is the number one place to work, like there's no other place I can go work. Uh, and so in that moment, I was pretty much like, okay, now is the time. Like I have to leave. And so I tried a variety of things. You know, I did everything from, I wanted to go open up uh, or be a Domino's franchisee, Domino's Pizza. So I went and worked in a store for a couple of days. I said, you know, maybe I'll become a software engineer. I uh, went to go look at some of the coding boot camps. But through a variety of that exploration process, the last thing I landed on was real estate investing. Um, you know, I had a little bit of experience in it in real estate dispositions for my corp and acquisitions for my corporate roles. Um, the business was very, you know, not easy, but simple to understand, right? There's an asset, you evaluate, uh, you value it based on a multiple of the net operating income or the cash flow that it's generating. Um, and then I just looked at it as, you know, I had been investing in stocks since I was like 13. This is a great opportunity for me to go into another asset class that I have a simple understanding of. And so I did that. Um, you know, two of my uh, friends had been doing real estate private equity for a little bit over a decade. And I um, partnered with them. We decided to kind of scale and grow that company a little bit more than it had than they were growing it. Um, and that's where we've brought the firm to today. Uh, we built a real estate private equity firm in the multifamily niche, really focusing on class B assets in Florida and Texas, you know, 100 unit to 500 unit apartment complexes. And um, that's what we continue to do, which is acquire, uh, manage, and then ultimately, you know, either hold or sell these multifamily assets in these growth markets. All right. So two things before we, we get into that. Um... The first is before real estate, I just, in, in going through our notes, you had kind of said that you had this kind of chief of staff support role that you did, that you worked on with executives. And there's a lot of founders and executives uh, that listen to this podcast. Can you just dive a little bit more into like what a chief of staff role kind of looked like in your world and kind of a little more detail on what you were doing there? I think it's a fascinating position that's not talked about enough. Yeah, absolutely. There's a variety of chief of staff roles today. I think they become a little bit more popular over time. But um, you know, for me, I think the prime example and the best way to use a chief of staff is as an executive, you have so much on your plate. But ultimately, there's a kind of few priorities that you want to be pushed through, right? And a lot of your work is really just leading, managing, and delegating. And oftentimes, that can be very uncomfortable because you're not the one that's actually doing the work, right? You're kind of driving the vision forward, making sure that people are on track and executing. But you're also reporting up to a higher level executive or a CEO or something like that. 
the chief of staff is really there to be able to help you as an executive push all of your priorities forward, build metrics, build dashboards, check in with teams and get the pulse of how things are going, what is off track. And as as an executive, a lot of the information and narrative that gets filtered up to you has went through so many kind of checks and massaging of data and narrative that oftentimes you're only getting the good story. And the good chief of staff that is able to kind of suss out, you know, where are risks in this project plan? What is going wrong that's not being communicated is the chief of staff that is invaluable to an executive. And so for me, it was really focused on one, pushing forward executives' priorities where I was working with, you know, either cross-functional executives that they had uh, for cross-functional projects or some of their direct reports to make sure that we were staying on track with things, to make sure that we were uh, measuring the right metrics and then actually hitting those metrics, and then ultimately making sure whatever projects or metrics we were trying to hit, we were staying on track with that. Outside of that, you know, from a personal perspective as a chief of staff, it really helps you understand um, how does an executive think? How does a great executive think? How does an average, how does a below average one think? And you're able to learn from each of those types of people what not to do as well as what to do. Um, And you really just learn all of these kind of leadership skills, delegation, managing people, that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, for me, it was a great experience because... I was young, I was really fresh, like didn't know a lot. And I was able to develop all of these analytical, um, you know, kind of leadership um, and kind of just managing skills at a relatively early age because I was a young kid, um, you know, working with people that had 20 or 30 years of experience. All right. I have to ask the magic question then. What, what, and, and, and you can give me the, the uh, high level answer. What makes a great executive and what makes a poor executive? Um, You know, for me, there's a variety of factors, but I think it all comes down to leadership. And this is something that I've really had to learn the hard way. And leadership is kind of a vague term. But, you know, for me, it's how do you get the most out of people in the unique way that they can achieve their potential, right? Uh, Oftentimes, you know, I do this myself where I talk a lot about how, you know, if you're not happy in your W-2 job, then you can be an entrepreneur, you can kind of, you know, build wealth, have freedom over your time, eventually all of these kinds of things. But for most people, actually a job is right for them, right? And so the great executives are the ones that are able to kind of flex their style to their direct reports. Or if there's cross-functional executives, being able to persuade and influence them to do things that will ultimately be better, you know, for the overall organization. And so that's the people that I have seen really succeed. And so it's people that are able to persuade and influence others, whether that's their direct reports or their peers and colleagues, uh, but in a way that is unique to everybody, uh, unique to various individuals, because everybody is so different. Um, And I've seen every type of different style, you know, some people that are extremely nice to others, some people that are fair, some people that are extremely tough. Uh, And so I don't think there's one right way to do it. Uh, you kind of got to flex, uh, but then you have to be unique to kind of, you know, what is your personal style? Okay. That was awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's that's really the first time I've riffed on that um, on this podcast. Uh, okay. And then before you got into real estate, you went and worked kind of for a mentor, correct? Or you, you kind of shepherded somebody for a little bit. And I think this is something we've talked about on Twitter a lot for how people can get in, but speak just for a few minutes on that experience and kind of what finally gave you the full confidence to go, 
all right, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go do this on my own. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think this is one thing that uh, certainly helped me and helped accelerate things a little bit was uh, my initial, um, you know, thesis was I was going to go buy houses in college towns and, you know, build up a portfolio that way. And someone I had talked to had said, you know, I kind of tried that where I was building up, uh, building, uh, buying rather single family houses, duplex, these kinds of things. And it's taken me a little bit of time to kind of build, um, you know, the cash flow of the business I wanted to. And so I started going for larger multifamily. So I said, okay, my background is in finance operations, you know, being able to model things. You know, what if I just partnered with somebody or went under um, someone and did kind of a mini apprenticeship that needed that type of help, right? And I knew underwriting, you know, takes a little bit of time, takes a lot of effort. Uh, And so what I did was to say, okay, I know I have a strength in modeling. Let me just go figure out how to underwrite actual real estate deals. So in a course of um, you know about one month, I think I underwrote almost a hundred real estate deals where I was just going to broker websites, uh, you know, pulling down deals, calling the brokers, getting information, and just underwriting these deals. I mean, I was spending so much time doing it, <laughs> and um, at the end of the thirty days, I um, you know kind of felt like really good about it. I had all of these th- these reps that I had got in pretty much like practice. Um, and I shared it uh, with that person. I said, hey, you know, here's here's what I can do. This is how I underwrite deals. This is what I did over the course of the 30 days. And, and they were like, oh, wow, like this is amazing. Um, you know, I've never seen someone kind of go do this this quickly. A month ago, you were telling me you were going to go buy, uh, you know, houses in college towns. And <laughs> I told you not to, and you went and did this. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, uh, you know, I'm relatively efficient at this. And, you know, obviously I can can model um, why don't I just do it for you? I can probably take a lot of um, you know work off of your plate. And you know, in addition to that, like I'd be happy to take on more uh, type of work, right? Any project management stuff, you know, managing due diligence on projects, that kind of stuff. And he said, okay, let's try it out. So, you know, I went to go work under him. Um, it was pretty much an apprenticeship where I really didn't ask for anything. I just said, I'll do this work for you because all I really want to do is learn. Um, and so I did that. First, I started with underwriting deals. Um, you know, started doing good with that. Then I got more responsibility in terms of being able to talk to the brokers that he had developed relationships with, um, got to start managing due diligence on projects, doing project management of the actual acquisitions and kind of being a transaction coordinator. So a lot of that kind of work. After some time, like under a year, I felt, you know, okay, I have a, I have a pretty like firm grasp on general concepts here, right? I know how to underwrite. I get the project management. It's like project management in any other area. It's just more specific now to this particular asset class. And, um, you know, you just have to be super organized. You have to ask detailed questions. You have to kind of get into the details. Um, And so I kind of realized, okay, my growth is stalling a little bit. If I keep going down this path in this apprenticeship, what will I gain? Versus if I'm to go do this myself, what will I gain? And at that point, I made the decision that, you know, okay, I think I'm comfortable enough um, or, you know, have the uh, at the right point where it's time for me to kind of go try this myself. All right. So you 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 get through the apprenticeship and then you you basically launch JT Capital, which is what you're doing now. Uh, can you talk about just kind of how it's structured and kind of the thesis going into it and how you maybe landed on that thesis? Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Um, me and two other partners, uh, my partners, Suppin and Pooja, we both run JT Capital. Uh, we have each kind of, you know, roles and responsibilities that we focus on, where one person will focus on underwriting and acquisitions, one person will focus primarily on uh, asset management, and then one person focuses primarily on investor relations and internal operations. Um, you know, at the time, the thesis was effectively, um, you know, broadly, um, in the Sun Belt, population growth, job growth, temperate climates, business and landlord-friendly environments, so on and so forth. And so I kind of knew, like, this is where I want to focus. Uh, then within that, looking at both Texas and Florida as a subset of that strategy. But then also, that is where I had started developing relationships um, as I was doing the apprenticeship. And so it kind of worked out in that way. And then, you know, Texas and Florida have been two of the big beneficiaries, I would say, within the Sun Belt of this. Certainly there's others like Arizona and a couple others, but Texas and Florida, as you know, have been, uh, you know, really great growth markets. Um, And so our thesis has pretty much been, you know, we like going into these uh, tier two markets that have good population growth, job growth, so on and so forth. Drilling into that, what we looked at was these class B assets, multifamily apartment complexes that were built between um, you know, 1980 and 2010 typically, had 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 been taken, you know, good care of, but certainly had some deferred maintenance that needs to be fixed up. And then probably hadn't been renovated um, in maybe a decade or so. And so what we look for then is these apartments in certain neighborhoods that have below market rents, and there's um, opportunity for us to be able to maximize NOI there, usually through um, interior unit renovations, uh, through you know meet light to medium value add projects, fixing up deferred maintenance, uh, and then lastly, putting in high quality property management. And so we have a property management partner. Um, in Bell Partners that manages our entire portfolio that has been around for 45 years and has you know great resources, talent, processes, so on and so forth, that allows us to be able to effectively execute our business plan um, with a trusted partner. And is most of the value add that y'all do, does it come in one form like it's always unit upgrades or is it sometimes amenity upgrades or common area or is, is it or is it usually kind of under the same kind of thesis in each property of how you'll achieve kind of more value? Yeah, the 80-20 of it is that, you know, typically it's always going to be a playbook of the unit renovations, upgrading amenities, uh, upgrading the clubhouse, right? That's kind of where we found the most value as others have as well. Um, You know, that additional 20% is where we're able to kind of find additional types of value. For example, you know, in one building we looked at, there was these um, like storage units that were built into the building. And we looked at at it and we said, these are an additional 20 units that could be built here. All we need to do is convert these things. Certainly, it's going to take a little bit more CapEx, a little bit more work. But this is value that can be driven you know, over and above what our typical playbook would be. So usually when we're looking at these deals, you know, we start with our playbook of, okay, how can we... Um, increase NOI on this property. Typically, it's on that, you know, unit renovations, clubhouse amenities. But then we're also looking for, okay, what are other ways to be able to generate incremental value here? What are like some of the things that like uh, landlords that have deferred maintenance, maybe, I don't want to call them sloppy landlords, but maybe lazy landlords on a cost-cutting perspective, where do you usually see uh, bloated costs showing up on these kind of properties that have, you know, owners have owned them forever and maybe their basis is low? Is, is there some low-hanging fruit in the cost structure that you usually can identify? 
Sometimes, um, you know, it's a variety of things. On a couple recent deals, I've seen, um, you know, the payroll be a little bit too high. For example, an owner had owned an asset for 17 years. Uh, they were relatively hands off. They wanted to keep the staff really happy. They didn't want resident turnover. So, for example, on this deal, you know, they just wanted to keep the staff happy. The payroll was pretty high. The average resident had lived at the property for three years. Um, there was 30% of the uh, complex had lived there for 12 years. Uh Uh, Yeah, 12 years. And so, um, you know, it's some of these kinds of things where it's not, it's not like they were um, managing it wrong. They were managing it based on what their strategy was. But as we looked at it with a different hat on, we said, okay, this is ways that we can maximize value. Other things you'll see is kind of just, you know, I would say like a little bit of, um, you know, sloppy work, like maybe they weren't cleaning out the gutters as they should be. Uh, maybe the railings weren't being painted and things were rusting, um, you know, instead of replacing the siding in certain areas, maybe they just painted over it. Um, you know, the dumpsters didn't have dumpster enclosures and it looked bad. And so, you know, you can kind of tour the properties and you start to notice these things where, you know, corners were being cut or they didn't have the CapEx to spend or they didn't feel that there was good return on that CapEx spend. And so we look for that little stuff that we know over time as you start adding those things up, it goes to drive the value of the property. Right. Is there a minimum size you won't go below? Uh, and, and if so, why? Yeah, typically we're looking at minimum 100 units. Um, you know, it all comes down to kind of economies of scale and what we can get. So, um, you know, just from a property management perspective, um, the lower you go in terms of unit size, the higher percentage management fee that you're going to be charging from a, the property manager's perspective because they need to hit an absolute dollar value amount, right? And so my expense ratio on the smaller assets is just inherently going to be higher because of that versus, you know, the larger unit sizes I can get, I'll have a lower expense ratio. Right. On... uh on okay, so you're buying a deal, and and you are, and I'm going to get into this in a little bit. I think it's fascinating how large of a company you run with three partners. But um, when you're doing unit renovations, and maybe on some of these deals you're rebranding them, how how do you do that? Do you work with your property manager? Do you guys have like a standard set of these are the renovations we make at every property? You already know your products, and you just kind of get going. Like, how do you think about all the upgrades when you're that outsourced? Yeah. So the way that we do it is, um, you know, when we're initially kind of um, looking at a property, touring, underwriting, we're looking at what's happening in that market, right? Uh, In certain instances, you know, maybe I don't need to put in stainless steel appliances, but I can put in black slash stainless steel and I'll get a little bit better cost savings on that, right? Um, Or maybe, you know, um, in certain uh, assets, I can do the, the vinyl plank flooring on the first floor, but I can't do it on the second floor because there's noise issues. So I have to put carpet on the second floor. Or maybe it was built concrete and I can do vinyl plank flooring on both. So we're looking primarily at things like granite countertop, appliance packages, you know, um, furnishings, um, you know, lighting, all of that kind of stuff. But then we're tailoring it based on what is going on in that market, submarket, and neighborhood. Yep. But generally speaking, it's pretty close just because we're playing in most of the the major metros in Texas and Florida, um, or I should say in Florida and then really in Austin, Texas. 
Um, and so when we look at that stuff, we kind of come up with our business plan to say, okay, here's what we're going to be doing uh, in terms of interior unit renovations. Here's how many units we're renovating and so on and so forth. We align on that business plan with the property manager ahead of time. Now, in certain instances, you know, we have some kind of um, what I would call like strategic vendor relationships in place for things like flooring, granite, uh, granite countertops, etc., that allow us to get a pretty good cost basis. Um, in other instances, like you know, lighting packages, maybe appliances, those kinds of things, we are going through our property manager to source that. The benefit of having someone like Bell Partners is that you know they manage um, you know like fifty thousand units across the U.S. or something, and so because of that, they have strategic relationships in place, not only with. Um, you know, contractors and stuff like that, but also with, you know, Lowe's Pro, where once you hit a minimum threshold of spend, you're able to get X percent discount on products. And that typically helps. And so it's a variety of things. The way that we are able to kind of manage it effectively in a relatively lean way is our asset manager, Pooja. She's built, um, you know, these just amazing dashboards, trackers, so on and so forth. So when we get into an asset, we already know what the unit renovation plan is generally speaking, right? We've identified the actual units. We've identified the timetable that we're going to be um, renovating these on. And we kind of have a, you know, first starting with a month by month tracker, week by week, so on and so forth. And, you know, as things come up, there might be a delay, you know, someone didn't show up and now things get delayed by a couple of days and it's stackers. Um, you know, we just make sure that that gets updated. And then she has the weekly calls with, um, you know, both the regional and then as well as the property manager. So that helps kind of just stay in sync and on track. You have delays too sometimes? Yeah, you know, that's the uh, the beauty of working in the world of atoms and not bits <laughs> is that you have to work with a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, you have to deal with the the people problems. Yeah. Uh, when y'all are renovating, are you renovate, are you, is your plan to always renovate all units? Or are you kind of saying, hey, let's get through 50% and leave a bite at the apple maybe for the next owner? Or is it kind of a case by case basis? Yeah, it is case by case. Um, it's a couple things uh, is related to what you said. So some of it is, you know, let's renovate units X percent, 25, 50%, whatever. And then we've proven out to the, um, you know, next potential buyer, hey, we've renovated 50% of the pro uh, property. These are the rents that we've been able to achieve. Now you can go finish that business plan on the rest of the 50% of the units. More often than not, though, it also comes down to kind of, you know, what makes sense from a numbers perspective. If I got to throw in, you know, $10,000 a unit on a 200 unit property, you know, if I got to raise $2 million of CapEx because I want to do the entire property, that might make the numbers not look so good, right? Because I have to raise all of that as equity. Or, you know, sometimes we're able to finance that, um, you know, with debt, maybe if it's a bridge lender or something like that. Um, and so, you know, it comes down to both, you know, um, what do the numbers look like? What is the time frame that we want to execute this business plan? And then certainly, what is our story going to be on the exit? What is your asset manager, um, what is she looking to achieve on her calls? And maybe break it into two scenarios. One, during kind of a lease-up um, renovation stage. And then once you're kind of stabilized in your plan, what is she looking for then? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the weekly calls are interesting because I kind of look at them as just 
um, one touch point to show that the owner is involved in the the, the management and the operations of the asset. So you got to remember, you know, as an owner, this is your baby. This is your money on the line. Like this is yours, right? And oftentimes, if you're not involved, um, things can happen where, you know, maybe the effectiveness or the value that could be derived from the property is not there because, you know, we get a little bit of comfortable, right? It's just a natural human tendency. But typically, uh, on asset takeover, um, from an asset manager perspective, she's mostly focused on, you know, how are we going to start kicking off these renovations as quickly as possible and then making sure that our marketing pipeline is working well so we have the right type of resident demographic coming into the office that is effectively going to lease these properties. So in the very beginning, you know, we're managing expenses. We're making sure that, you know, the expense ratio is in line and everything like that. But really, if I was to focus on the one thing that matters, it's always those unit renovations. How quickly are we turning them and what are we renting those at? As an example, a property in Austin right now, that has been our main focus, right? The only thing that we're focused on is how quickly are we renovating units? Is the quality of work being done well? And then what are we renting those at? Um, and you know, just based on where rent growth has been today and these tier two markets this year, and broadly speaking across the US, I mean, it's been amazing uh, because probably there was a little bit of um, slack in the system from COVID, right? So relative to 2019, but we've just seen amazing rent growth this year. After this, um, you know, kind of lease up period and um, doing the, the renovations and everything like that, after that, it's just kind of, you know, let's just manage this property effectively. On our renewals, let's continue to get healthy kind of rent increase. Um, based on whatever the market is doing, whatever our comps are doing, so on and so forth. Um, two, let's continue to manage expenses, make sure nothing gets out of line. Uh, but ultimately, after stabilization, things get a little bit easier because you can go refi, you're able to return capital back to investors and yourself. Um, and then lastly, you know, you're know, you just kind of making sure that nothing is going wrong on the property. How uh, How quickly are you trying to make a unit turnover? In a week, 10 days, a month? Yeah, we don't want it to ever go past 10 days um, for, for the most part with our playbook, right? Because a lot of what we're doing is we're going in, replacing countertops from, you know, maybe laminate to granite, um, you know, depending on the condition of the cabinets, maybe fixing those up a little bit, um, replacing carpet with vinyl plank flooring, or in certain cases, just replacing carpet only, um, in certain cases, painting the walls, doing um, lighting fixtures, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. So if you have your vendors all set up, you have good timetables and you don't have delays, you know, that stuff shouldn't take longer than like five days max. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, things come up. And so we like to manage it to no more than 10 days. That also allows you to, you know, not have a lot of vacancy. If you can pre-lease the unit, amazing, right? Because you know, okay, I've already pre-leased this at a certain uh, rental price. Uh, if you can't, then, you know, okay, you're going to have a little bit of vacancy for longer than you may like. Are a lot of the tenants, uh, let's just say I was in a tenant, I was a tenant in a unit that actually needed to be renovated. Is the first discussion with me, hey, we really want to renovate this unit. Um, do you want to move out for a little bit and then move back in? Or can you can you do the renovation while they're there? Or do they leave altogether? Like, how, how do those units come available? And what's the discussion with the tenant that might already be there? Yeah. So if someone is, um, 
you know, looking so, so to step back, the way that we run the process is, you know, when a renewal is coming up and we've identified that that unit is going to be um, renovated, we'll propose the increase to the residents, say, hey, uh, you know, your lease is about to expire. We're planning on renovating this unit. Here's what we're going to do to the unit. The updated price is, you know, X dollars if this is something that you're um, like interested in renewing at. Um, in some cases, the resident will say, you know, no, I don't want that. Is there anywhere else I can live on the property that has a lower uh, rental rate and will accommodate that? that. In other cases, they say, um, you know, I don't want that. And also, I would, I'm going to move. So, you know, that happens. But in this last case where they say, you know, great, um, I'll pay this price and you can renovate the unit. It happens in usually one of two ways. Um Sometimes the um, the resident will just move them into a vacant unit within that time frame, but then we really need to be on the ball within hitting those renovations within five days. They go to a vacant unit for a few days, and then you know we get them back in. And you know the vacant unit when you got a three hundred unit property and you know you're running it at like five percent vacancy, you still got fifteen units that are that are vacant at any given time, right? So you have that kind of slack, and it's one of also the reasons I like the bigger complexes. Um, and then some residents, you know, for example, a property we have right now, um, they've seen renovations are happening and some have said, you know, and we don't have a lot of occupancy. I mean, a vacancy at this property, we have like 1% vacancy. And so the residents have said, uh, come to the property manager and said, you can renovate my unit. You can charge me the updated price. Uh, but I don't want to leave my unit. And in that case, we've said, okay, but we can't do the flooring because that's tough. We like really need you to go into another unit. And they said, I'll forego the flooring and you can just charge me the same price. <laughs> and so that's, you know, the best case scenario that happens. It doesn't always happen. Uh, but usually that's kind of how we structure it as we do the renovations for people who want to renew at the updated price. Got it. Yeah. Is this, you're, are, you, are you talking about kind of the deal? I think you bought middle last year in Austin. Um, so that one, we're getting um, really good increases. Most of those were moving people into vacant units, doing the renovation. But for, for people that want to stay, in most cases, actually, we are um, running a pretty healthy marketing pipeline. So we're getting new residents, um, you know, because this is an area that we bought that had well below market rents. And we saw the growth of this area. Uh, but the the, yeah, the story I was just referring to is um, a deal in Florida that we did where, again, well below market rents and, um, you know, the resident base has actually been really good. So we want to keep them and we know that they are um, okay with some of the higher rental increases just based on what's going on in that market. All right. Pretend I just showed up from Mars. What What is the reasons why you like Texas and Florida in a nutshell? Um, yeah, you know, it's a few things, um, and it's nothing crazy. It's a very simple type of investment thesis that we talked about broadly in the Sun Belt, which is, you know, first the job growth, uh, you have significant job growth here, which always leads to population growth. When you look at places like, you know, Austin, it's, it's very evident, right? You have this Tesla gigafactory that's going up. You have Tesla employees moving here, SpaceX employees moving here. Um, you know, certain companies are like Oracle, you know, had a campus here, then they said they're moving here. And really all they did was they just moved their kind of like tax HQ here. But still that news is good, just hearing that news, right? Um, and so you have a lot of kind of development that's happened over here over time. And, and so I really like Austin in particular. Um, and Texas, as you know, like 
really business friendly, landlord friendly. I think a lot of what the states, you know, if they haven't real, some realize it, some maybe do realize it, but aren't willing to take action. But all of the states are in competition with each other for citizens. And you have to be willing to be able to attract the right type of citizen you want. And you do that by attracting the right type of companies you want. I think Texas and Florida have both done a really good job at that. Um, you know, outside of the job growth and the population growth, it's, you know, these no state income taxes, uh, you know, is obviously great as an owner of asset or even as an employee. Um, and then lastly, I think it's just, in most instances, the ability for a lot of these places to be landlord friendly, right? Um, you know, in certain cities, it, it may not be the case, but generally speaking, in most cases, it is. Um, and so that allows it uh, a landlord to be able to do business relatively easily versus if you're in certain states on, um, you know, the coastal areas where you have rent control protections in place um, or really strong rent control regulations. You have, um, you know, really good resident um, protections in place, which can be great, but also can be really unfair. And for me, setting aside all of that stuff, it's just how do I put myself in the best position to be able to win the game that we're playing? And I believe in Texas and Florida, you have a lot of those great tailwinds. To all of our coastal landlord friends, my heart goes out to you. You, you guys have a lot more patience <laughs> than I do. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, I want to spend like a few minutes. I just think it's super cool how you have set up. You have three partners. Y'all bought almost a half a billion um, but you've kept really lean. And when we, and when we've had our chats, you've talked about, um, you know, virtual assistants and integrations and dashboards and just a lot of outsourcing and a lot of automation. So it's a, I know it's a loaded question, but can we talk about some of the cool things that you've done there and how you've been able to, you know, grow without growing headcount and keeping overhead low, like how you use VAs and what, um, softwares you're using, and if you could give us a peek behind the curtain at how you've thought about setting those up, uh, I think I'd love it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, from the very early days um, and just kind of working in tech, I realized like there's all of this opportunity to not create a company that has too many employees because there's a way to do this in, where you can kind of automate, delegate. Pro, uh, standardized processes, so on and so forth, right? And so uh, what we did from the very beginning is we started looking at, you know, kind of every task that we do, how does it look like if it's on an org chart? Who would this task sit below, right? And we kind of just built it from the bottoms up where any task that we would occur, we would ask ourselves, can this be automated? Yes or no? And if yes, great, let's automate it. If no, then what portion of it can be automated or delegated? And through that playbook, we've just done it in this bottoms-up process where every task is either automated or delegated. On the delegation front, um, we structured it in kind of two ways. One, a personal assistant who can kind of do things that are more, um, you know, you need location dependency. And then two, a, uh, a variety of virtual assistants that work on different tasks. And so everything from asset management to investor relations to acquisitions, um, you know, we have some portion of either automation or delegation. From an acquisitions perspective, you know, is a um, real estate investor, you're looking at deals like a significant portion of your time, right? Those deals primarily come in through your inbox. There's no reason for 
um, you know, an investor or an owner to be going to your email, you know, clicking the email, downloading the documents, doing all of this stuff. But rather, that's, these are all steps that can be uh, that are repeatable and can be delegated to a virtual assistant. So we have a virtual assistant that goes to the email every morning, identifies all of the deals, um, you know, pulls all the documents, puts them in our centralized uh, folders and Dropbox. Uh, populates our deal flow tracker. So when you wake up in the morning, uh, Suppin, who handles our acquisitions and underwriting, does not need to go filter through his emails and look all the deals. He simply goes to the deal flow tracker, sees what's come in this morning, and then kind of goes through those. You know, in some instances, it's not always like that. You might have an off-market deal. You know, the broker emails you, you're going to get on the call and stuff like that. But, you know, this automates uh, or and or delegates a significant portion of it. From an asset management perspective... You know, again, you don't need to be going through the reports that get emailed to you, downloading them, putting them in a folder, all of these kinds of administrative things, but rather um, two things. One, those can either be automated through some of the property management software that's used, like Yardy dashboards and stuff like that. Uh, or two, any of the reporting can be downloaded and kind of viewed on just a consistent basis. Like the way that I think about work sometimes is you know, I have a specific outcome or goal in mind, right? What is the occupancy of my, all my, my portfolio? I don't want to start finding like different files, doing calculations and stuff like that. I just want to go to one spot where I know that the answer is. And we're able to do that through this automation and delegation. And then lastly, from an investor relations perspective, you know, we've set up the process. It should be pretty standardized on every deal, Right. You get a deal, a deck needs, uh, you know, you, you get under contract, a deck needs to get put together, an email needs to go out to all of the investors in the CRM, um, you know, that you've developed pre-existing relationships with. Um, the, the, the commitments need to come in, the docu-signs need to be signed, so on and so forth. And so all of that is, uh, again, either automated or de delegated using things like, you know, Zapier, which will allow you to kind of connect different platforms, uh, VAs, which effectively need to just change, you know, certain words in the email template and send it out. Um, and then, you know, there's certain things which will never give up, like access to bank accounts and that kind of stuff. Uh, but that's a little bit about how we, how we do it. And so I know this is a really big topic for people professionally or personally of like, how do I stop doing the work that I don't like doing? And so my framework is effectively, you know, do I like doing this? Yes or no. Um, can this be automated? Yes or no. And can this be delegated? And in most instances, instances it can be delegated. You know, you just have to train someone a little, a little bit once. It takes a little bit of upfront investment. Uh, but man, you know, that stuff really pays off. How are you finding your VAs? Do you use a service online or how do you find them? Uh, yeah. So for, for the VAs, I simply have just went to Upwork. Um, you know, we would have uh, kind of like these filters that we create, like, um, you know, this person has earned whatever the max earnings on Upwork is, like $10,000 or $100,000 or something, uh, you know, located in the Philippines, has only five-star reviews, um, and, you know, maybe a couple others. But you're just filtering for kind of like the best and the most experienced people. Uh, then from there, what I'm doing is, um, you know, reaching out to those people proactively. It'll be a long list of people. Hey, here's the job I posted. You know, if you're interested, um, like here's the details and click here to kind of book time on the Calendly. Um, and, you know, to step back one second, the beauty of all this now is whenever we want to go hire another virtual assistant, 
we're not even doing this work. The VA that we have on staff <laughs> is posting all this stuff. Um, and so, you know, it's a way of thinking of like, hey, I can delegate all this. Um, and, and so we do that. And then, you know, what happens is that you'll get a bunch of interviews scheduled over a variety of days that you block off. Um, you know, some percent are just not going to show up to the interview. So immediately eliminated. Uh, some percent will kind of, you know, not pass the interview questions that, that you've had. Uh, and then some, uh, like a smaller portion, will be the right people for you. And so you kind of make sure, you know, they have the right internet connection and they can work the right hours and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then from there, you kind of bring them on, you know, 60 to 90 day kind of test period. Uh, and then you can bring on a couple or however you want to do it. And then, um, you know, you keep the one that, that does really well. How many do y'all have as an organization? Um, right now we probably have six, I think. Um, and you know, and do they know each other? Do they all know each other? Yeah. So we use, we kind of do everything out of, um, you know, notion for tracking. Uh, we have a Slack channel so they can kind of stay in contact with us. And if they need to talk to each other for whatever reason, um, and you know, it's not only for, um, like, business stuff, right? And running the firm. But each of us individually also use them for personal tasks. Yep. Okay. And 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 how long uh, is... is in, once they make it through 90 days, is the turnover relatively high? Or once they've kind of made it through, these are folks that have been with you for years? Or like, what do you expect from a VA from like term-wise? Yeah. So on average, I've seen it be about, um, you know, two to two and a half years is how long the VA will stay with you. Um, you know, things happen. They want to go find another job. Maybe they've up-leveled their, their skills a lot. Um, maybe, uh, you know, they're kind of just like the hours don't work for them in, anymore. Uh, maybe they want to take on multiple jobs, just anything really like that. Um, and so, you know, you got to make sure like throughout the whole time, you know, you are kind of incentivizing them a little bit. When something goes really well, like they responded to an email, like in the best way possible that like you would have responded, you know, you got to give them a bonus of like four to five X what you would pay them hourly, right? And it's okay because there's this cost arbitrage between the US, um, you know, cost of living and market rates for, for assistance versus what the cost is in Philippines. So if you're paying four X, you know, because they did something really great, it's the amount might not be so meaningful to you, but for them, it's really meaningful, right? You just gave them an additional half day of work. And so doing those kinds of things, even just like positive reinforcement and putting it in the channel for like all of the VAs to see, you know, Eugene did a really great job here. Um, just want to show everybody an example of it, right? That kind of stuff can be exciting. So uh, even, you know, on this leadership side, it's even applies to that, right? Everybody is human. You got to treat them with respect, uh, make sure that they're happy and everything like that. And as you do that, um, you know, they'll continue to stay with you. In the beginning, it's tough, right? They might not be following the exact directions you want. Maybe you need to be a better communicator and clear in your directions. Uh, but over time, like they get to know how to work with you. They know how you communicate. Uh, and there's this amazing compounding effect. Yeah. If anybody listening, uh, if they follow Rohan on Twitter, he wrote an incredible thread on on hiring VAs and the importance. And what was the threshold you said? Anybody should think about hiring one if you're at like a certain point in your career? What was kind of the threshold that you set? Yeah, I said 100K, you know, arbitrarily, because that seems to be the good, you know, level for a knowledge worker to, um, or like a white collar worker to be able to kind of outsource a lot of the administrative tasks they're doing. But, you know, who knows? 
maybe if I just got out of college and I had a you know decent paying job, um, I might go get that. And I think you know companies should be doing this. Then uh, they may be in the future. Who knows? But you can really unlock so much, um, you know, just value and time and potential by being able to outsource a lot of or automate, uh, you know, some of these administrative type of tasks. All right, two more questions on automation. Um, uh, as, as it relates to the VAs in the Philippines, are they very fluent in English and can write emails like an American citizen? Or is that where you're really having to draft kind of more templates so that they can't get too far out of, out of range? Um, they're pretty good, um, generally speaking, as you go through your interview process, right? So ultimately, the ones that you pick are the ones that you want to be able to have good written communication skills, right? Um, so they can kind of do that. You know, the templates is mostly for um, certain processes where everything should kind of be the same, generally speaking. For example, in a deal, you know, a, a deal email that we send out to investors, it's going to have an overview section. It's going to have some deal highlights, projected returns, that kind of stuff. Now, you know, I need to write all of that out because it changes on everything. But they have the general template of how the email actually gets structured. And then they do the work to... I just need to write it in Google Docs or Notion, and then they just kind of simply copy and paste it in, you know, our um, like system that sends out all the emails to the investors. They do the formatting based on the template, and so on and so forth. All right, and then uh, my last question: Can you just uh, maybe speak to one connection that you've made through Zapier that would just the audience would find interesting? I think this is. Obviously, it's where the world's headed, and I just I find it so fascinating. So, what's like some cool automation that you've done? Yeah, uh, so I can give a couple examples. Um, so, one is you know when you're sending out a um, like investor email for let's say like raising commitments or something like that. Hey, we have this deal. If you want to invest, you know, fill out this form with your information. Um, typically, what we'll do is you know uh, like a type form, or same thing as like a Google form. Uh, people can fill that out. And then, you know, you have all of their information. You know, usually you are, like the simple mindset is, okay, people are going to fill this out. I'm going to go check this type form and, um, you know, like I'll I'll see the responses. But what if you can have all of that consolidated into one area, right? So that goes to just our Google Sheets where we're tracking stuff, right? Um, Then in addition to that, we have kind of like, a Slack thing where, you know, anytime that commitment comes in after you send an email, email, it says, John Smith has committed a million dollars, right? <laughs> like these fire emojis. And then once we've <laughs> hit our goal, great, you know? And so you kind of, um, you know, have these things. So that's cool uh, and also consolidates things. But then on top of that, what we do is, um, for example, when someone signs the DocuSign, that also flows to that Google Sheet. And then we have, you know, formulas that are in the Google Sheet from the people who filled out the type form that says now this person has signed the docu form and you know all the steps are complete right now all that needs to happen is the automated email goes to them to say hey here's the information for the wire so on and so forth and so that's a cool one where it's like at the very beginning of the process you need to gather information it goes into a consolidated ledger spreadsheet then the next step of the process you know that some most of these people are going to need to sign the DocuSign. They sign the DocuSign. You don't need to go somewhere else. It just automatically gets populated in your one centralized location. And then once that happens, you know that check check has happened. Then the automated email goes to the person for um, you know signing the 
Uh, I, I mean, sorry, to get the information for the wire. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. We saw this really big shift where, you know, today, if you're an investor, whether you're a high net worth investor or you're an institutional investor, you have a lot more options if you want to invest in real estate as an asset class compared to maybe five or even 10 years ago. And with the kind of proliferation of options, one of the things that that happened was that as an investor, you start to have a lot more control. And with control, you can make more demands. And with those demands, you can place those on your managers. And while that might make life difficult for some managers who are ready to adapt, one of the key demands is, hey, we need more transparency. Like, I need to know if I'm going to give you $100, how is that $100 doing? Where is it invested? And what is the return on my investment? You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. All right, we're going to get into some personal stuff. Uh you just have some fascinating stories that we talked about. But before I, I want to end the real estate discussion real quick on how do you capitalize deals going in? And then what are you looking to get to kind of on a recap or a sale? And then on, on that capitalization, like, are you raising deal by deal? Is it a fund? Who are you raising from? All that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we raise on a deal by deal basis, right? Just SPVs. We say, here's the asset that we've identified below market rents this is our business plan our strategy so on and so forth and um, you know we send out the deal to our investors and um, you know they commit and, and wire over money um, our investor base you know started with kind of just you know friends and family like Indian uncles that own businesses came here a long time ago <laughs> those kinds of people and then it really just grew through word of mouth right you execute and generate returns for one person they're gonna go tell five of their friends and it grows exponentially. Uh, and over time, we've been able to, you know, grow that investor base, and through that, been able to meet, um, you know, a few families that, um, you know, have like a little bit higher net worths, uh, and then they've been able to kind of um, continue to accelerate the investor capital that we've been able to raise. Um, so we do that. In certain instances, we do, um, you know, just kind of like smaller um, multifamily assets where we'll just partner with one family, which is in our investor base and kind of, um, you know, capitalize and purchase and run the deal that way. Um, our structure is typically paying, you know, a preferred rate of return and then some type of carry over and above that return. Um, when we go into the asset, we're looking at, you know, are we going to refi? Are we just going to, um, you know, add value and exit or kind of what, the, what is that strategy going to be? You know, in today's market, a lot of what we're uh, and you know historically what we're looking to do is execute the business plan, uh, increase the NOI, go refi that. You know, throughout that time, we've delivered cash flow to investors, and then also we're going to have a large um, you know non-taxable event back to investors when we go refi. Um, and then after that, you know, we may sell the asset after some time, or we may hold it for a much longer uh, period of time. And on the go-in, are you usually getting a bridge loan of some type to get to a refi, or is that deal-dependent? It's deal-dependent. Uh, you know, historically, 
Um, we had typically done agency financing, so Fannie or Freddie, and gotten good, you know, kind of terms there. Um, in today's market, we're seeing a little bit better terms for you know our type of business plan from bridge lenders, where Fannie and Freddie have been a little bit more conservative on LTV interest rate, uh, and bridge lenders seem to be stepping up to kind of um, fill this market need for you know the value add type projects. Uh, but that may change over time as you know certain. Um, dynamic shift on agency financing. Okay. All right. Um, can you talk a little bit about Mark Zuckerberg sending you emails at 4 a.m. while you were working at Facebook? <laughs> yeah, certainly. So, um, you know, I did a, a variety of roles at Facebook, but um, one of my roles was focused on um, kind of growing our um, trust and safety team. Um, and so, you know, Facebook, they, they'd grown pretty quickly, right? Their organization, which was focused on, you know, content moderation on the platform and things like that, um, was pretty small relative to the size of the company, right? It was about $100 million or so. Um, and, you know, this company is generating billions of dollars in profit. And so just profit alone. And so um, things were, you know, creeping up on the, the Facebook platform, like, um, you know, more like hate speech on the Facebook news feed. And these issues are very prevalent today. Like we know them, but, you know, back then it wasn't so evident. It was kind of happening in different pockets. But then during this period of time, like certain things happened, like, um, you know, in Cleveland, um, someone like live streamed a murder, right? And I remember that particular issue. Um, Zuck had to present at a conference the next morning and um, you know, it was primarily a developer-based conference, but he had to start off with, you know, how Facebook is so sorry that this happened and everything like that. And so, um, you know, he's pretty notorious for like waking up early, extremely hard worker, really thoughtful, but, um, you know, got an email from him at 4 a.m., me and a couple others, which pretty much said, you know, I know you're working on growing this organization and, um, you know, you're kind of doing it in this deliberate way, whatever. Um, and I know the future is automation, right? Automation will be able to detect some of this stuff, take it down proactively, whatever. But right now we have a huge problem and it needs to be fixed and it needs to be fixed immediately. Spend whatever amount of money needs to be spent. Uh, and I expect to have a proposal in like two or three days. <laughs> and so we were like, oh, you know, we'll, yeah, I wake up pretty early, but not that early. And I woke up to this email and I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to get fired in maybe three days. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Facebook was um, known for kind of like these lockdowns whenever the company would have a really like huge priority. Everyone would kind of put down everything else that they're working on, focus on this one thing. Um, you know, at the point I was there, it was kind of like a little bit more focused, not the entire company needs to focus on this, but certainly our group needed to. And so um, we pretty much did a, a lockdown. We got in this war room. We decided, okay, what are the problems here? How would we fix these things as quickly as possible? And we put together a plan to be able to fix that, which is effectively, you know, growing this organization. Um, you know, and now at that point, I think it would have been about like a three hundred million dollar budget, but growing the organization five x over the course of a year, which encompassed hiring fifteen thousand employees not all full-time, mostly actually outsourced employees, opening up all of these offices across the globe that would house these outsourced locations, and then having the technology and the process and processes in place to be able to either proactively identify this content or take this down immediately as possible. 
And so, you know, for months, like we were just working so hard, uh, getting little sleep, um, you know, but it was fascinating because you got to see uh, the mind, the thought process, the relentless like focus and execution on what matters from, you know, like one of, I believe, the greatest leaders in the world. Um, and so that was just like a fascinating experience that, um, you know, started off where I was like, oh my God, like, what am I doing here? And then, uh, you know, moved into just this uh, amazing type of opportunity when I look back on it. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's still one of the biggest issues facing humanity today is like how we're going to, do we moderate content? How do we do it? What's fair? What's not? Uh, that That's super cool. And going back to leadership, like what made him such an amazing leader as you look back on it? I know he catches a lot of heat, uh, both good and bad, but kind of the unfiltered version, like who is Mark and why is he so special from your perspective? Yeah, um, you know, it's a few things. I think, you know, from a business perspective, um, you know, great capital allocator. Uh, You look at the WhatsApp acquisition, the uh, Instagram acquisition, the Oculus acquisition, you know, now people talk about things like, was the Instagram acquisition unfair? At the time, he bought it for a billion dollars and people thought he was crazy, right? I thought it was crazy. Um, and now that's the reason that the company is, you know, uh, one of the biggest growth drivers of the company, right? The Oculus acquisition back in the day was, you know, what are we buying here? We're not buying a true business. Uh, and, you know, this week he said, Oculus is pretty much the future of the company, right? We're creating the metaverse, um, and so I think it's uh, a pretty fascinating what they're working on. A lot of the projects that are in, um, I bl- it will believe it was formerly called Building 8, but it's kind of their you know moonshot factory, if you will, are just like amazing projects. Um, and so he's really kind of um, great capital allocator, forward thinking, has a vision of where the future is going. Um, you know, from a like communications and decision making perspective, he's. Um, quick with decision making, right? That example I gave is one very clear in, indication of, hey, I'm willing to spend whatever needs to be done here. I, I don't care about what's going to happen to the margins. I care about the future success of this company for the long term. Um, and then lastly, uh, like within that, he's just very thoughtful. When you see him on the interviews in public, you know, it's not. I, I really don't know what it is, but oftentimes he can like seem kind of awkward and yeah. doesn't come off in, in the best way possible. <laughs> but you know, when in those weekly, because he would do weekly Q and A's with all of the employees, um, really down to earth, a thoughtful kind of person explains a lot of the decisions with logic. And when you hear that from the inside, you can say, okay, you know, the the understanding and the logic of how he's coming up with decisions really makes sense. You know, it's not coming from a place of malice or bad intent or anything like that. Um, And then, you know, lastly, which you never really see this, you don't see this in the weekly Q&As, you don't see it on live TV. But when you see some of those kind of like emails that have been uh, leaked, I mean, he's just a shark. When he wants to go get something, he's going to go get that that thing, right? He's either going to acquire a business or he's going to figure out a way to build it and kind of try to, you know, crush that business because there's a great market opportunity. Uh, and so he's just, a, I think, a shark when it comes to business. And, you know, sometimes you don't see that in the, the public facing or even the, the internal discussions with the broad base of employees. Yeah, I love it. There, I think there's a Twitter handle called like tech emails or something. I follow it that 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 shows that. And uh, maybe my favorite meme going on right now is the one there's some guy that did a back and forth between him and Evan Spiegel, just kind of recreating it. I guess at the end, Evan's <laughs> like, I'm not selling to you. And so it's him on the phone, like telling the Facebook people, like, 
go create this right now. It's, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, you know, they're the speed of execution, decision making, um, telling, you know, you know, being able to see opportunities and execute quickly is um, certainly something that, you know, sets him apart and has helped Facebook build this amazing company. Do you think he could be as successful or anybody could be like anybody that has a budget like what he has, where you can literally be like, I don't care how much money you spend to tack it. And you're, you know, you're generating billions is part of Facebook. And I guess, I mean, this is maybe just a really dumb question, but is part of the, uh, the advantage is just how much capital they have to play with and make mistakes with and, you know, just at any point in time can shoot the bazooka off and nobody can compete with it. Yeah. 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 No, I don't think it's a bad question at all. Like, you know, um, certain people could think that's actually a disadvantage because we have so much money that now we're going to be able to throw money at every problem. And maybe that's not the right way to solve it. Right. But the way that I think about their business is like, yes, they have this cash cow that gets, um, you know, generated from the ads business. And, you know, mo and, you know, this happens now in tech with Amazon and stuff, but a lot of public company CEOs would say, great, like we're generating these returns, get it back to shareholders. Right. But Zuck, Bezos, whoever they've said, we're generating all of this cash and we know it's great now and it probably will be great for the medium and, you know, portion of the long term. But we got to start thinking about how does this company um, survive for a hundred years? So the bets we're taking today are the bets that we believe will pay off in you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And I believe that's what a lot of their focus is on, is they're spending a lot of um, you know, capital on these things that were like in building a Oculus, that kind of stuff. Uh, and because of that, I think that that's why if the bets pan out, which I believe they will, that's why there'll be a company that stays long for the long term and will not be, we won't look at it like as a social network, maybe as we look at it today or an ads business. It may be a completely different business, which might be, you know, the next computing platform that Facebook, Facebook is actually powering. All right. This isn't financial advice. Is it still early to buy the stock or don't buy the stock? <laughs> yeah, not financial advice, uh, but I'll tell you this, that I have not sold my Facebook shares since I was, um, you know, granted them. Um, and I continue to buy. I think today, or, you know, recently, Facebook is trading at maybe like 30x earnings, and Shopify is trading at like 120x earnings. Um, and so Facebook, you know, 30x earnings you know, that might as well be what multifamily is trading at right yeah. now. And so uh, I really like Facebook as an investment. But again, you know, not financial advice. What yeah. do I really know? Take it with a grain of salt. All right. Um, I got you for a little while longer. I'm just, I, I'm really impressed by your background. You've you've been in tech. You've, um, you know, you did the work with GE and kind of that chief of staff role. And then you got into boring old real estate, which, um, you know, so you just have this really great perspective and and your your newsletter, you're really thoughtful. Um, I know you like real estate. I know you like these things, but I know you're just a thinker. And so I figured I would just ask maybe a loaded question is like, what do you think about the world right now? What's what's kind of on your mind? What, what interests you right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the world is just absolutely fascinating right now. Like there is so much opportunity out there. Um, you know, and I'm a very like positive, optimistic, glass half full person. Um, I'm really into mindset and these kinds of things. And, 
Uh, yeah, maybe I'm naive, but I just think like there's opportunity for everybody out there to be able to do anything. Um, you know, when I look at kind of, um, you know, the business that we've built today, it's it's been good. You know, we've been able to uh, acquire these, uh, develop relationships, acquire good assets, generate good returns for investors and everything like that. You know, our... Um, our like thesis and then our um, like temperament and our how we operate is we're very um, conservative. We're always thinking about what is risk on certain things, right? Or wherever there is risk, what are the ways that we can mitigate that risk as much as possible? If I'm buying an asset and I got to take a variable rate um, on that interest rate, you know, can I get it? What's the interest rate cap that I can put on that? What? How long is it going to take me to execute my business plan? All of those kinds of things, and so. Because of that, and because we haven't wanted to stray for our, from our investment thesis and our conservative underwritings, once you do a bad deal, like it really hurts. Um, we've like just dialed back on the number of deals that we're doing because the market is so hot, right? Facebook is trading at 30x earnings. Multifamily real estate in Austin is pretty much trading at 30x earnings, right? <laughs> in Florida, it's trading at you know maybe 25x earnings. And so, uh, because of that, you know we've um, we've um, you know, kind of dialed back the deals that we're doing and we don't do as many. We still have good underwriting processes, still get a bunch of deal flow, but on most of them, we're saying no to and we're saying no relatively quickly. And so because of that, most of my time now has been spent, um, you know, certainly like kind of making sure our current assets are performing. But also now I just spend a lot of time reading, right? About whatever is interesting me at the time. It might be real estate, it might be biographies of people, it might be crypto, biotech, whatever. Um, and so, and I've taken up hobbies like golf. <laughs> um, and so, you know, right now I, I'm just at a point where, you know, we as a, a company, we're looking at what are various other asset classes that are maybe out there. And we're spending more of a portion of our time than we would previously on, you know, what are other assets that we potentially could be investing in, right? I'm looking a lot at the, um, kind of democratization of finance and fintech products that have popped up. Um, I'm looking a lot at kind of like the real estate tech space. Uh, in fact, um, me and the team are kind of doing research right now on what has happened in real estate tech and real estate startups over the past handful of years and putting a market map together, seeing what's out there, seeing where competition is, seeing what succeeded, what has failed and why. And so, um, you know, as I look at the world today, Asset prices across effectively every asset class are higher than they've ever been. And so there's probably some inherent amount of risk in the system where you need to be a little bit more cautious than maybe you have been before. But also we're living in a time of you know the lowest interest rates ever, and it's been declining over time. So maybe uh, you know capital that you get is a little bit cheaper to, to source. Um, and then also you just have this influx of equity capital right? So many people from not only large institutions, but now the individual investor is saying, hey, I can have access to these private alternative investments. Great. And so that's going to continue to happen. And so a lot of my time now is just spent thinking kind of, you know, okay, multifamily, this niche is really good. We can continue to acquire assets. Maybe we won't acquire at the pace that we have been, but still we can find good assets. But then also, um, how should I be spending the rest of my time, right? Uh, if we're only doing a few deals a year now, um, maybe one to two deals even, you know, how should I be spending the rest of my time? And I spend a lot more time, I would say, you know, this year and probably the majority of the rest of the year, just reading, thinking, looking at other opportunities that are out there. 
um, across a variety of broad industries. Is there anything on the the market map in the kind of real estate tech world that has been kind of uh, risen to the top that you're seeing opportunity in, or you're still just kind of figuring it out? Yeah, we're in the, you know, super early phases. I would say, you know, when you look at kind of like the largest or most transformative companies that have been built, it's the people that are attacking the biggest problems, right? Which should be kind of no surprise. But, you know, um, Paul Graham has this post that I read recently about, I believe it's called schlep blindness. And it is about, um, you know, we face problems in our lives every day. And we kind of just don't really think about them as problems. Like that's just the way it is, right? Um, and so, for example, Open Door looked at a problem like, why does it take 30 to 60 days to sell a house? That's insane. It should take three days, right? And so they just attacked that problem. And most people like won't even think about that. Even like some of the smartest people don't think, hey, that should be a lot better. And now we're going to go execute on that idea, right? I think the property management software space has certainly been interesting. You know, there's effectively, you could argue, some monopolies that have been built in that space. Um, and then lastly, you know, one that has really, really interests me um, more recently has been just kind of the mortgage space. Similar to, um, you know, how it took 30 to 60 days to get a house. Why can't I just get my mortgage day of, you know? There's a lot of people out there that the underwriting should be fairly quickly. I should be able to provide that loan immediately. And so, um, yeah, these are just, uh, you know, a few of the things I'm thinking about, but certainly it's super early and we're doing a lot of research. I'll add one to the list and we don't have to talk about it, but if any listeners uh, want to think about it, it's crazy to me uh, that there is not a global property management brand in the commercial space. So, you know, there's like the CBREs and the JLLs of the world that are big and have property management. But it's just kind of interesting to me that there's not a dominant brand that, you know, almost like a Four Seasons. When you walk in that building, there's just going to be a level of care and management that's just kind of, you know, globally understood. I think there's and really the same as in residential, too. I think there's a huge void in the marketplace for this, like, globally known property management brand The the naysayers would say, well, property management's competitive. Not every owner can use the same brand. Um you know, because people want to have different managers if they're managing differently. But I think that could be figured out. It's just crazy to me that in something that I think's becoming so important, which is the management of these properties, property management's always kind of been, you know, shoot under the rug. There's a huge opportunity there. So I'm, I'm just throwing my little two cents in. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, so yeah. So, you know, if anyone listening has great real estate tech startup ideas, uh, reach out to me and Chris. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, or if you know any companies right now that are interesting that I should be, uh, you know, making sure I'm including on in that, the research that we're doing, that would be awesome as well. All right. I got a couple more and then we'll bring it home. Uh, you said you've been reading a lot. Is there anything that you've read this year or maybe a couple things that uh, other listeners should be thinking about reading? Um, yeah, so a book I'm reading right now is called, um, and, you know, it's a little bit more on the leadership side, but uh, The Winner Within from Pat Riley, that one has been pretty good, uh, just about, um, you know, he'll use his experiences of, you know, the Lakers winning a championship, how they almost fell apart as a team during 81, 82, and then kind of got it back together and his perspective on leadership, which has been amazing. Um, you know, one I read earlier this year, uh, which I believe was written in maybe like 
2000s was um, the sovereign individual. So that one has had a big impact on me of just, you know, where society could potentially be going. I mean, they are talking about things like not exactly how crypto is played out, but in a certain way. But they're talking about how, um, you know, effectively, you know, institutions have lost trust, which is probably even worse today, how individuals can kind of command a greater share of what they're worth, um, how countries and, um, you know, sovereign nations are really here to serve the individual and the tax that they are uh, putting on people really should be commensurate with the services that they are providing. And you've seen kind of like the little shifts in this um, occur, right? Like the nomad lifestyle and people that are running e-commerce businesses, maybe living in Bali and taking advantage of this cost arbitrage or, um, you know, some of these nations announcing that, uh, you know, they're Bitcoin first or things like that. And so, yeah, that has been, um, you know, really, uh, really interesting book that like, I feel like I'm thinking a lot about, um, you know, these are a couple that, that stand out this year. Uh, my favorite book of all time is um, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is just a collection of talks by Charlie Munger. And yeah, that one really changed my life because it is just rational, common sense. And I think for me, at least, a really good way to 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 approach life. It's so good. And and sometimes it's painful to hear the truth, but it is, uh, it is so good. I love that book. Um, all right. What's one thing that you believe in that most people around you do not believe in? Um, I think one is um, this, um, this perspective of you want to value your time more than you value your money. And, um, you know, we all kind of inherently believe that, right? Oh, yes, our time is more valuable than our money. But the actions that we take oftentimes don't reflect that. Like this whole VA thing that I'm on is like one of the prime examples of that, of like if my time is really valuable and I want to set an aspirational you know, dollar per hour rate that I believe I should be generating, then anything below that rate I should not be working on. So any task I'm doing... Um, you know, does that actually measure up to that dollar per hour rate? Um, you know, I, I really, you know, we're only on this time on this earth for so long. So I want to be surrounded by amazing people. I want to talk to great people, people that I admire, that I respect. It doesn't need to only be people that have been successful in business, right? It's just people that are positive, optimistic, like talking about life and happiness and those kinds of things. And so, for me, that's been one there that I've seen, you know, myself personally was, I would say I value my time over money, but I really didn't in the actions that I was pursuing. And now I try to, you know, balance more of that. And a lot of that even relates to, you know, just um, being able to spend fam- time with family, uh, you know, my parents, my brother, my wife, our daughter, uh, things like that. I love it, man. All right. Thank you so much uh, for today. If if somebody wants to get in touch with you or find you, how, how, how would they do that? Uh, yeah, thank you as well. Uh, Twitter is probably the best way. Um, Twitter.com slash Rohan Jahar uh, might be tough to spell. So it's R-O-H-U-N-J-A-U-H-A-R. Uh, and I love hearing from people. And, uh, you know, all of my new friends I think I'm making <laughs> have all been on Twitter, uh, which has been amazing. <laughs> 
that'll be in the show notes. Uh, yeah, man, thank you again. I, I have a ton of respect uh, for you and and what you're doing. And, and this was a real treat to, sh- to sit down with you today. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and likewise, what you're doing in the industrial space, uh, you know, in Dallas, Fort Worth, I think is amazing and broadly across Texas. And um, yeah, I've really loved your podcast, admire what you're building with this media company. And um, yeah, I'm happy to be able to call you a friend. And I think it's uh, pretty cool what you're doing and excited to continue to, you know, develop our friendship. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.